So I'm back, The Growth Vault. I'm here with the uh, CEO and co-founder of Pangea and Open Border. Rob decided not to join us, whatever. So we've got an LA-Toronto connection. I'm really, Darvish, I'm really excited to, uh, to chat with you. Thanks for, uh, thanks, Ron. Shout out, Ron, for giving us this connection. Excited to chat, man. Yeah, very cool. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So today, like we're going to talk about a special episode because what Darwish does is so damn interesting. But this podcast is about the intersection between e-commerce and B2B SaaS and kind of how those two things actually have like a, a really strong marriage. And Darwish is actually on the front lines of doing both of those things. So it's like a really interesting conversation. But I think at the jump, we usually like to talk about something that's uh, a bit of a hot topic. So I was reading an article this week about uh, threads and how just their like their usage has fallen off a cliff and i mean this is not new news but i still have it on my homepage of my uh, one of, or one of the pages that i can scroll to and i have not been on in 3 weeks i went on after i read this article but essentially now facebook or meta is admitting that they made a mistake you know just releasing it because there was no features that anyone was going to like be a part of and so i'm curious from your from your perspective Darush, before we go into like some of the business stuff have you ever released something where you knew, like, this is not going to be good, but we just got to try it and see if there's anything there? And even if we have to deal with some backlash and, like, you know, back it up a little bit, we're going to put it into market so that we know that it's something to invest in. Yeah, I would say I've fallen in that bucket more than the other way in my career. I think the best example I have this of this is when I was... Uh, Early on, I was a product manager at a company called Optimizely. They do like A-B testing. Yeah. There's a feature that we had to build, and I just hacked this thing together. But I think I hacked it in like two days. I was like, look, this thing is ready to go. We can launch it. And it was like the other 20% of work is going to be a pain to do. Yeah. And managers didn't want to do it. And I was like, guys, forget all that. We're just going to launch this thing as is and see what yeah. happens. I went to like this other PM who I needed to like buy in to get, get it launched. And he just said like, why would you build this 80% like this? And I said, we don't need the other 20%. And yeah. we just got in this like debate. And I think yeah. every like a bunch of engineers crowded us as we broke up the time <laughs> talking about why we why we we don't or do don't need this. And I, I was like this like crude guy just like pushing it out. And he was like a perfectionist. So I think both on the opposite ends and need a little bit of both of that at different times. But um yeah. I think definitely I view to launch launch iterate, get feedback and and not waste time. So um have been there um and have felt the the downsides of that. But the positives have always been bigger for us. Yeah, and I think you know, just a meta. We're not. A, I'm not a meta scale or anything yet, so maybe yeah, it's yeah. different in that, in that world. But uh, I totally like. I like moving things and breaking. I like moving fast, and breaking things not that much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, there's no real downside risk for them, right? Because it's a now they have proof that they can build another ad channel for themselves over time, and now it's about like, okay, we have the signal. We know that there are people there. We know we have this opportunity. Let's go build all of the things that actually make it sticky. So completely agree with you. I have over-optimized things before too, before you do a launch where you design it so perfectly. And you're like, you know what? I could have just used a little signal before I spent all this time and money and energy building this thing. So I, like you say, build something quick and just make sure that it doesn't break anything too much. So 100%, 100% agree. So I want to talk about... What it's like going from building hey, I'm a losing large you a little bit. Is that my e-commerce hold co 
of businesses and then taking those learnings and building something new. I think this is something I talk to a lot of different entrepreneurs about. Either they've been in e-commerce and they want to go into SaaS or they've been in service business, servicing e-commerce and like, oh, I see this gap. Like, what is, I mean, and frankly, that's, you know, my new company, Heatmap, was an agency owner who saw a gap in the CRO market and we're building something for that specifically. What's been your experience kind of building something so different to what you're building now? And like, what did you see like that actually gave you the confidence to go and build something new? Yeah. So, uh, and you're talking about the uh, open border to Pangea. The Pangea yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. The Pangea, yeah. you know, you built this thing to make open borders, which I love kind of the, the synergy of names, by the way, and how they, they work together. That's great. Yeah. You know, I think for me, like working on this international problem in some way, like, it was an inevitability. It was like destiny in some ways, like in a, in a funny way. Like I think I've always been obsessed with and thought about just like, how do we go build something in one country and clone it in another? Like for whatever reason, I've always had this strand of thinking mm. all the time. And I was like, can I start a gym? Can I start an Equinox in India? Can I, I looked at all these different permutations of things um, along the way, fast casual concepts in, in the Middle East. Um, so I always fascinated by just businesses that worked well here and could we bring them in other parts of the country or other parts of the world? And so Pangea actually was like the first like real scratch of that itch, which was you had basically, so Pangea, for those who don't know, was a holding company for direct consumer brands. Mm-hmm. It very much built like with the aspiration of being something like the rocket internet for direct consumer. Mm-hmm. So we're going to fast incubate B2C brands. We're going to launch them in many countries out the gate very aggressively. And we are going to focus on picking brands that we think have a lot of international potential. So that just means that the brand works on some kind of global secular trend. Mm-hmm. It's not like a Chubby's, which is like a very American frat guy yeah. type brand. It's yeah. it's like men's skincare, it's it's grooming, it's electronics, it's stuff, mm-hmm. supplements, stuff that really it's everyone in the world is starting to adapt these types of products in yeah. some way. And the reason for that simply was one, you could do it now. Like with an e-commerce yeah. brand, you could build a global business out of the gate. Like you could literally yeah. be in 40 countries if you could flick on some Facebook ads. But then two, top down, every macro number I saw kind of affirmed to me that international was like this big next wave of e-commerce. Mm-hmm. T- 20% of global e-commerce was outside of the US in 2018. Less than 10%, sorry, 20% of the global e-commerce was in the US in 2018. Less than 10% of global e-commerce now in 2023 is in the U.S. So wow. this is a movement of hundreds of billions of dollars. And most venture dollars that were went into direct consumer were spent on U.S. advertisements in, mm. in, in region. And so I just felt there's going to be this big arbitrage opportunity to market abroad. Not a lot of brands were doing it. All the major consumer conglomerates had been doing it since the 90s. Yeah. And I was like, this is inevitability. These, these brands will do it. This is exactly the type of stuff that I'm super excited by. For whatever reason, I've always intuitively scratched my curiosity. Yeah. Uh, so let me give this a shot. But that was the idea of Pangea. And we set out, set out on that with my co-founder, uh, Ricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we launched two brands. We learned in that process that after launching the first two brands, those both of those brands got to like kind of mid eight figures in scale. We would not be able to launch brand three. We were barely able to do number two. And the reason for that is really that you kind of learned that I learned at least that in brands world, as you grow brands to be larger and larger, you find that like it, you're better off having a couple of bigger category leading brands mm. than trying to own like 20 smaller things because mm. they each require a lot of incremental thinking. And you know the most exaggerated version of this is like 
LVMH grew like 30% or 40% last year yeah. at colossal scale. You kind of yeah. want to try to go build the really category-defining leading brand that yeah. just keeps growing at scale because the incremental thinking there is a lot different than trying to launch the next brand concept, which is really hard yeah. to kind of keep finding. Yeah. So there was some realization that we couldn't keep launching brands, but then there was also this realization that international was really big for us. Yeah. 50% of our revenue when we hit the nine-figure run rate mark for the first time yeah. was outside of the U.S. Uh, and so we were like, okay, international part of our thesis, correct. Multiple brands part, a little bit different, learned a lot there and, and happy to chat more about that. Yeah. And so Open Border was really the idea of, all right, let's go, instead of trying to create product market fit over and over and over, because that's really hard, let's go help all these other brands that already have product market fit go international. Mm -hmm. Because if we talk to them, they don't have the stuff that we have internally. They yeah. will struggle and spend a lot of time. They'll make mistakes that we have already made. We can do all that for them much, much easier. Uh, so that was the genesis of Open Border. It was, uh, it was the realization that we're better off powering instead of creating here. And that was a very empowering mission. And it kind of, you know, I think Open Border for me is like, is not, almost not a separate company than Pangea. Yeah. It's like a 1.5, you know, it's the yeah. same problem. It's the same thing I went out to. It's the same original insight that I'm just yeah. kind of continuing to dig into. Yeah. So that was how we started Open Border. And it's a completely different business. It's a, it's a B2B software logistics business. Yeah. And so the entire motion of it's completely different than yeah. than in in uh in building your own brands. But uh but that's where we are and, and we're we're you know diving diving in. So one question I have is like super it's an interesting one. I think like all founders should think about this. And maybe I'm I'm completely reading this wrong. I think a lot of times like the way you're raised has a an effect on the way you see the world. Do you think because you come from family of like immigrants, right? You see the world more global scale than maybe someone else would? Because like a lot of people have the idea, let's start a, like a a hold co of brands, right? They yeah. don't go in with the thesis like this whole world out there, right? So you see, okay, well, we can service the entire world with these products because I have been in a store in another part of the world and the same products exist or don't exist that are having people are having problems with here. So I absolutely need to be involved in that. So do you think that had anything to do with kind of your perspective? 100%. So like my, my co-founder, uh, he grew up, so he's born in, born in Korea, spent some time growing up in Japan. He moved here kind of closer to high school. And so for him, completely international background. I was born in the US, but I have family in India, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, yeah. a little bit in Europe, and then and some in America as well. So traveled a lot kind of growing up. And so I think it's those experiences that colored what we saw as interesting to us. Whether we saw the commercial reasonableness of it, there was some intuitive things that made us think about it a little bit differently. Uh, and I think this even showed like in our early rounds when we were fundraising for Pangea, there was no consumer investor that wanted to invest in us. They all thought we were kind of odd. In fact, like people would look at our website and be like, how do you guys make so much revenue? Uh, like you make way more money than your site looks like it, it could make. Yeah. Uh, like you're doing that with that site? Wow, that's yeah. that's actually pretty impressive. How are you going to grow this business? Well, I'm going to launch more countries. Well, you know, it was kind of like they were looking for certain answers and we were always talking like a different yeah. way. And so early on, we actually kind of found ourselves not able to raise from the traditional consumer investors but attracting like a much different group of investors who are more technology focused mm -hmm. and 
interestingly, all had international backgrounds themselves. Mm. So they were investors who themselves were, were immigrants. They had traveled abroad, they, et cetera. And they saw and felt kind of what we were talking about in a way that yeah. we felt we never actually got from like strictly investors who were maybe multi-generation American. And I don't know if that was coincidence or not, but we, we definitely joked about it. We're like, wow, like we only get, we only get like immigrants or, or equivalent kind of early on from the, from the institutional funds. Dude, there's a different thing. Like, and this might sound weird to people, but there's this weird connection you have when you're first gen, like with other yeah. people. And you're like, dude, did your dad do this? And they're like, bro, absolutely. <laughs> your dad jump up every time in the middle of the night. Where were you? Dude, I'm 27. Like you don't need to wait in the front seat of the house waiting for me to come home. So I don't think that's weird at all. I think it 100% tracks with with any experience I've had when you speak to people who have had those same experiences. So one thing you talked about that I think is really fascinating is, um, I, I want to debate it a little bit, is this, this idea because everyone, not everyone, this is a bit of hyperbole, a lot of people want to have a hold co. I've had, I don't know how many people have talked to me about this. I want to have a hold co, I want to have a hold co. And you just yeah. came out with, and I don't think it's a very hot take, which is if you actually want to do it well, having 10 brands is actually not going to be the way. It is one, two, maybe three, if you're, I don't know, like lucky sure. that actually can do it at the scale that you want to do it. So I'm always curious about this because you have a bunch of people say, I have a suite of micro SaaS. I talk to these people. It's like, well, yeah, you do but you just have signed up for a different version of business. If you really want to grow your business, you can't spread yourself too thin. So I'm curious, both on like what data supported that? Did you guys even try to start a third one? And we're like, no, we're not, or absolutely not doing this. And then what's it like now that you have these two brands in this one business? And essentially you've now taken, you've gone to Pangea 1.5. Like, is it hard to run both and siphon them off? Or do you have like incredible operators inside of Pangea so you don't have to worry about it as much anymore? Yeah, cool. So two two big, juicy, two big, yeah. very juicy, interesting questions. All right, yeah. so let's do, the, let's do the first one. So first one, I'm going to, and you're going to have to remind me the second one after no, yeah, I got you. Probably. got you. But uh, first one was Holdco model, why, what, what I think, why I kind of walked away from it or what does it take for it to work? I think for a Holdco model to work well, you need to have some like edge of differentiation that you can really expose. I think you're, and the differentiation can't simply be like operational excellence. Like there's mm. a bunch of really smart founders. Like we're all, we all work hard. We all can do ads well. We all know how to like, you know, consolidate and find good three PLs, do supply chain well. Like we all know how to do that. That can't be the thing that makes the whole co model kind of hold up. It needs to be something more proprietary and more unique. So that was where the international angle came in. Now, I think that the reason we kind of walked away from it was our brands got bigger than we thought they would be. We thought we'd have 20, $10 million brands or 10, $20 million brands. We, we mm -hmm. had two brands that looked like they could become $100 million plus brands. And we still believe that today. And so we had two brands that we thought, thought whoa, these things can be special. But once you realize what a special brand can be, I think you also start to like have different types of conversations. So as I started to talk to more and more later stage consumer investors mm -hmm. and more and more execs at the big consumer conglomerates, mm -hmm. I kind of realized that the big brands were where, where it's really at. So yeah. like what that means is like the big brands, like to make a brand work, you have to obsess over the product. You have to obsess over who your customers are. You have to obsess over getting these things right. And as soon as you lose that like obsession, what you then get is 
you, you lose the innovation and creativity that kind of got you to where you were. And that part is what you can't recreate 10 times over. You can do that one or two times over. Yeah. And so you need to have full teams obsessed over like a problem mm-hmm. every day, banging their head on it. I, I strongly believe that. Yeah. And so it doesn't mean you can't have, I, I don't think this means that like you can't do multiple companies. I actually yeah. just do multiple brands of separate companies entirely with, yeah. with CEOs in place, each one that are yeah. fully incentivized to wake up and do each thing like all in every day. Um, yeah. That's how I would do it. And from a valuation perspective, every conversation I had shows that Holdco's over time trade less than the individual brands. So really? what will happen is like if someone wants to buy Lumen, the person who wants to buy Lumen wants to buy Lumen because of its brand. They understand premium, they understand premium men's skincare. They have an insight into the men's market, the beauty market. That's a certain type of buyer. Hmm. The person who wants to buy an electronic trimming business is very different than that. The person who wants to imagine if you had like a mattress business, what we did, those are three complete different strategic buyers. Yeah. And even if you had talking to, to financial buyers, they're also different because they're like, we like this category and we're in love with this, but we're not in love with the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so like what ended up, what I ended up seeing was that these kind of hold co models and I got this valid many, many times through many conversations, mm-hmm. they end up trading down. They end up trading down on like EBITDA, the magic sauce of any individual brand doesn't show up as much as anymore. And so for whatever reason, that was the data points that, that kind of sold me on taking this a little bit slower yeah. uh, or thinking that like, you know, one guy, I don't want to say who, but biggest consumer funds out there. He told me, look, if you can make Lumen alone, a $400 million revenue business, EBITDA positive, it is going to be far more exciting than you getting eight brands doing $50 million. Like it is incredibly exciting if you can get one brand there. And yeah. I was like, whoa, true, true, true. And he's like, but that's think about what that would take, like what what type of focus that would require, and how well you had to nail the market to get there. Yeah. But if you nailed that, what does that mean for what Lumen could be after that? Yeah. And then I was like, whoa, whoa, you know, like these fifty million dollar things, they, they may just be fifty million dollar things. They, they may actually become harder to maintain because they degrade yeah. over time. They, you know, they're it's a fight to maintain small scale. So that was like the shift in mindset for me. Is I just I was like, if I play, I want to win. I don't want to. I want to go for gold and that's it. Yeah. Like, that's, that's my mentality. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's the whole co-model. Um, and I think the math just tends to not work out usually well, yeah. but multiple brands, single founder, multiple CEOs, yeah. I think it can work. Yeah. As Rabba says, the math doesn't math. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah, 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 I get that. I get that. That's great. Second question was you have the hold co and these brands and like, just like that investor said, you want to be able to really focus and deliver against that. But now you have Open Border, which is driving impact. And you see there's this huge path towards it being a meaningful, huge, meaningful business. How do you do both? Because a lot of people yeah. I talk to, they get really afraid of or reticent to try something like this and have such a bold vision for their life because of this I want to focus and just be exceptional at this one thing. So like, how has that been for you? And how, what have you put in place to be able to action that? Cool. Totally. People. It is impossible without the right people. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate in Pangea to where I think we've surrounded ourselves with really good experience in brand yeah. building. Uh, and people who've yeah. seen what it takes to build category-defining, category-leading brands. Mm-hmm. So we, we hired a CEO for uh, Pangea. Um, she, we actually first hired her not as a CEO, but as a president. So before we ever split Open Border out, before we even thought that that was something we would do, we actually hired a president for uh, Pangea 
who would be like our number two. And she would essentially bring in the experience of taking brands to that like next level. She was a former mm-hmm. public company CEO, uh, Ingrid, uh, current CEO of Pangea, former public company CEO. She took Physicians Formula Public in the 2000s. She sat, she ran the company as a public company CEO for many years. She turned around multiple private equity backed beauty brands and took them to mm-hmm. exit. And so you kind of heard her stories and what she was good at. And it was all the things I felt we needed to do well to mm-hmm. be able to have a chance of being that category defining brand. Yeah. It was like, and she had a very deep brand building, very deep product development background. Mm-hmm. Which I think we were very, a little bit more leaned towards like growth marketing, digital marketing, and some yeah. of the things that kind of fill the, the ecosystem of D2C today, which is like, you know, yeah. how do I get CAC to work out? Yeah. And so I was like, cool, I need this. We need the best person we can find in this to make this work. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that I can't learn it too, but I think it's good. This is a place where skill set jump is going to be big and it's going to bring someone in. Yeah. We brought Ingrid in and then she was going to be like the overall primary person on Pangea. And we were incubating Open Border in, in parallel uh, under the overall Pangea umbrella. It was in that process that we started building Open Border. We started to get some traction with it that we were like, whoa, this is even crazier now. We have a B2B business and a B2C business all in one issuing equity to different types of people is very difficult because we can't give early stage equity to like the early stage engineers at open border because they're part of the cap table of of Pangea. The investors of open people who put money into open border will probably never put money into Pangea and vice versa. Two different sets of investors, but two different companies being built under one right now. Uh, And really multiple companies. Like we have a few different consumer brands and then we have, uh, we have open border and so we, we kind of then started to make the realization of two things at the same time. One, it was going to, that it was going to be far more advantageous for Open Border to be a separate business than live yeah. under Pangea. Yeah. It just needed to have, it needed to have that clarity uh, and focus. And if we want to capitalize that business ever, it had to be a different company. We could not do it under Pangea. Yeah. Like, in fact, having Open Border inside of Pangea was hurting Pangea's ability to fundraise. Yeah. And open borders ability to fundraise. So we had to split yeah. them up. Um, so we, we looked at the split. Fortunately, Ingrid was already hired. Uh, she yeah. was the person that was the right person to be the CEO of, of Pangea of now what is Pangea brands. Yeah. Um, we already had her. We never thought it would play out like this, but we had her. So life sometimes is funny like that. And she became the CEO of, of Pangea. Uh, my co-founder and I went to focus hundred percent of our time on on open border. Oh, so great. I don't have two like big companies that yeah. walking out side by side. I am not. I am not like, uh, I'm far from Elon Musk at that, you know, like no. I'm like, I do one thing and that one thing, it crushes me every day, you know, and yeah. I still, I still do that. <laughs> I do spend like probably a, a day a week right now working with Ingrid still on, on like Pangea, but I'm, I'm very heavily focused now day to day time on open border. And I would say like, I think once companies get to that series B, series C scale, mm-hmm. your ability to bring in executives can be very helpful. And in this yeah. case, I think building consumer brands was not our core skill set. Yeah. And that was where having um, having Ingrid come in helped us uh, in a way that we probably couldn't have imagined. And if we look at our board now, we have people from Unilever, LVMH, we have uh, we have Ingrid, we have really good global consumer investors in Eurasio. So we have like a very well-rounded board. Uh, and the level of conversation that we have today is like it's it's crazy. I learned I learned so much just being in the room. And so that's that's what makes that still really exciting. Like I, even though I'm still a big shareholder in Pangea, but I'm also like, an, I'm a learner as much as a builder at that point. I mean, I think this is something 
Thank you for sharing that. I think something uh, I always try to tell, it's funny, tell the kids these days is like, just try to get in rooms that you feel awkward in because you're going to learn a shitload from just incredible, incredible people. I mean, this is one of the things that's so fun about doing podcasts is like, I get to chat with someone like you, for instance, and just like, dude, you just show me the way, right? You have all this other information that I, I, don't I, know about that, but... I won't have or don't have access to. So yeah, I really love that. I guess going into going from, so obviously you worked at a SaaS company before you moved over uh, and, uh, and started working on your own stuff. Going back into SaaS, what's been the thing that shocked you the most? Because this is a funny debate I have with people where they're like, yeah, DC marketers are better than SaaS marketers. I'm like, I don't believe that, but like, let's debate. What did you think was going to be easy that wasn't, hasn't been? And what's been easier because of your experience running Pangea before you uh, split out? So I think in some ways, like consumer marketing is easier because if you get it right, you sell to the customer immediately and they buy. There's nothing in the middle. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a much faster scaling process. Yeah, like in the SaaS world, it's like this weird thing where it's like we go get the leads, we bring them in, and then we go through this three to six month sales process to go close them. Yeah, and in that sales process, there's a lot of room for error. Like you can mess up just because the salesperson didn't do something properly. We didn't ask the right question. We had the best yeah. product, but we we've we've lost a couple of pretty big deals. Where I was like, wow. In retrospect, we were by and far the best solution there. Yeah. We were just not the best salespeople in the room. Now we're becoming good salespeople, mm-hmm. but we were not the best salespeople. And so I think that in the B2B, in the SaaS world, in the like lower mid-market world, yeah. it is there's like some notions of like, how do you find your channels? How do you find like who's the right, you know, how do you find your ICP? How yeah. do you get in front of them? How do you keep CAC low enough? Uh, yeah. and you know what your deal sizes are. But as you get to move up in uh, like ACV a bit, I think the sales process itself has a lot of variability. It also means that anything you change up front, you don't know the impact of it till later. So I can go and say, hey, I increased my lead, lead volume 3x this month. Cool. Where are the deals? Well, yeah. I'm not going to know for three months because I got to go close them now. Yeah. So like are the good quality deals, not sure. And so that's that's a little bit of the, there's like a little longer of a cycle where it's like yeah. input to output is like a little slower. And so, like, if you're a very quantitative person, like me, as soon as you see a number like makes sense, I will abuse. I will find a thing that works, and I will I will jump on it with 200 <laughs> percent velocity. Right? Yeah. In this case, I can't jump because everything's a little bit slower. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's one of the big differences I think between SaaS and B to B, B to C. Yeah. And I, I really talk like the the large market SaaS. Like this is SaaS yeah. where you're kind of doing consumer esque marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the upper market SaaS is like I feel like a completely different game. Like it's like uh, totally it's different. like it is um, it's kind of how you break into these brands and it's like the whole account based marketing kind of yeah. strategy. It's it's all learning that. So it's uh, the tactics are very different, and the speed at which you can measure them and act on them are are completely different. But the core thing is all the same, which is just like effort in to measurement of output out. Right? It's just yeah. a little longer time horizon, and so yeah. like. I think you can do that scientifically with account-based marketing. I think you can do this relatively scientifically with, you know, with a paid ad strategy or with a event-based strategy or some hybrid of all these things. So yeah. I think it's um it does come down to like numbers and it comes down to memorability. Those are the two things. Like ultimately marketing is like memorability and numbers. Like is yeah. the numbers add up. If they don't, you gotta be more memorable. You know, it's yeah. not like it's just like how do you get higher recall in what you do and yeah. how do you get creative? Uh, and yeah. so 
that's the game. Uh, it's just like yeah. do stuff that no one else does, make them laugh. And 100%. I think like the Adam at retention.com does some pretty cool stuff like oh, LinkedIn feed. Yeah. Um, you know, he's memorable. He has high recall. Uh, that's it. Like it's, that's a, uh, it's the same principles in some, in some ways I find. Uh, so yeah, we'll be doing some wild stuff soon at open border, yeah. which I think are pretty non-traditional. Yeah. Uh, we'll see, we'll see how they, we'll see how they go. Uh, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, the, the time horizon thing is such an interesting one because I'm always telling people like, look, what you said, once you figure out the number and you can back into it, abuse that shit, like let it rip, but you have to like, be a little calmer and understand that just, it's just based on the velocity at which you're like, the numbers are growing, right? If we get a thousand customers in a couple, like in a month, we're happy. If you get a thousand customers on your e-commerce company, you're like, dude, we're fucked. Like that is not <laughs> enough, right? It's just a completely different thing. We get a thousand, like, oh my God, what a, what a fantastic month our investors are going to kiss us. Like, it's just a completely different conversation. The thing you're talking about, though, which is really fascinating, I talk to people a lot about this, especially like this low mid-market SaaS you're talking about, is having being cool and passing the vibe check are two of the most important things because this is kind of how you make your word of mouth coefficient stronger, which is people want to work with people that they trust and think are cool. It sounds... It's like very non-technical. I can sit there and say like, these are the numbers that back into it. This is the activation rate that you get from it. But like, just from a very non-technical yeah. perspective, to get people across the line, they just want to kind of hang out with their friends and know that you've got their back and that they're not just a number on a dashboard to you. Especially if you can make someone who's spending $50 a month feel like this, you've won the game. But especially if you're doing just a little bit, I know you guys are doing more high ticket. Like if you're doing high ticket stuff, it's such an important por portion of it. And I don't think people focus enough on, hey, there's a human element to me actually being able to deliver this software to you and actually yeah. making it a meaningful experience. Because at the end of the day, you're helping me hit my numbers and my goal is to help you hit your numbers. There's a business relationship here, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a good time during the entire process. And unfortunately, Maybe it's not unfortunate because we all have to do this, but sometimes we get so obsessed with the spreadsheet, we forget that there's like shit going on in between those cells that is like yeah. human, right? And I've said this a thousand times on all of my podcasts, like, but I, I always remind people there's a human experience going on between every data point that you have. And you got to be able to remember that is still a huge portion of why you're able to have good retention numbers. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the, the human stuff, like the creativity and the personal relationships, you, the, like both sides of those things, yeah, are what make the numbers work, actually. I think the numbers yes. just help you tell you, are you doing that or not, right? Yeah. Like, uh, they never will tell you what to do, but they just tell you what you're doing working. But like, the thing that you do to, do to get it working is that almost every time. Yeah. One thing you said that, that actually, I think probably many people have already noticed this, but to me, it became insightful for me recently, is... I think that LinkedIn is becoming for B2B, lower, like lower mid-market SaaS type stuff. LinkedIn is kind of like what Instagram was for D2C brands. Like what you're yeah. seeing now is like influencer profiles being built on LinkedIn. They get following, they yeah. put out form content, they put out video content. Yeah. They're, uh, it's being run like it's being run very direct consumer-esque in the way yeah. it works. I haven't like, flushed this out entirely and trying like a full funnel yet. But uh, I can see from a content perspective that LinkedIn has changed a lot recently. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's going to, I think what we're going to see is like some of, sometimes like the software components will be easier and easier to build. And we're going to find that like in SaaS, 
this may already exist probably as someone new to this world. I'm seeing this for the first time, but like, I'm like, well, like there are going to be 10 companies that build this thing and their ability to actually build their brand and market it will determine who actually works well. Yeah. Probably a better analogy is like agencies, like probably feel this a lot more than like SaaS yeah. companies do. Yeah. But SaaS companies will feel it too because software is going easier. Like it's it's becoming easier and easier to do. Yeah. And so now it's like, uh, it comes down and then it's like, okay, products commoditized, you have to go to distribution. Okay, how do you, who can win distribution? Yeah. Um, and winning distribution is is all the, it's all the core stuff, you know, it, yeah. it is. So I think the, the LinkedIn feeds are, are pretty interesting. And I, I bet we will see probably influencers arise that are like B2B influencers that, that yeah. get paid and sponsored and worked with. And it's going to be under the radar for a bit. Then it's going to come above board. Yeah. Uh, but when it's under the radar, that's where the money, that's where the money is actually going to be made. So yeah. if you can figure that out now, then then you, get, you got something. 100%. It's interesting. Um, I always tell people, if I'm advising them or talking to them, like, look, you have this company, it's a product. Your product is about value in, value out. And it's kind of an unemotional relationship. But you have an ability to layer on another product that is an emotional relationship that can help you when there are peaks and valleys in your customer's experience with you. And that's called your brand, right? And so that is either that's your personal brand, that's your product's brand, that's all of the different things that you do in between their usage of your product that allow you to keep the emotion and the like the psych essentially how happy they are with your experience as high as humanly possible and i think people are getting wise to this and essentially it's like the d2cification of b2b and it's happening at the plg like in the plg world a lot more sure. right now and of i think course. like anything it's as kind of you have these early adopters and innovators and it will move up market but like anything, it's going to take them, you know, four or five years to get their act together. Uh, maybe faster because, you know, information moves more quickly and people are willing to act more. But you're seeing it, you know, the Miro's, Looms, uh, you know, Survey Monkeys yeah. of the World. All these brands are having a lot of fun with their marketing. Yeah. Obviously, you know, in, our, in our market, Triple Whale has done such an incredible job uh, of like having just a good time with their marketing and making sure that people just kind of smile whenever they think of, of the brand. I think that's, that's almost like... Recall is just about the emotion that you you derive from that. If you can think of, like, say, we'll just use Triple Whale and say, man, these guys are just hilarious. It's so much fun. Oh, yeah, they, they service attribution. Oh, I need attribution. They're the most fun ones. They're the least stuffy ones. I'm going to go with those guys because they feel like they're me. That's really what, that's what cuts through. It's what you think of when you think of brands and you put them on, right? It's like, oh, these... My uh, my dad, it's funny, uh, I got him some uh, some Viore stuff. And he's like, yeah, I've seen you wearing this a lot. And I didn't know if it was like for me. So he puts it on and it's really com it's obviously really comfortable. He's like, this is for me. And so he starts looking at the brand stuff. He's like, oh yeah, they're outdoors. He's like, now I'm outdoors. I'm you know, it's funny kind of how <laughs> these things work together. And so then I remember he's like, so send me the website. I'm going to buy some more stuff. He saw the price tag. He's like, what the fuck? You paid <laughs> this much for this thing? And I'm like, dude, like nice things cost and it feels good, but you have these associations with what kind of life you're living, putting yourself in those clothes. The same thing Lululemon has done an incredible job of. So I think you're dead on. It's going to be this consumerification of this and people are going to have, the more people lean into getting their personal brands in place, the easier it's going to be to accelerate the business, like the business brands as well as a result of that. I think the one thing I would say to anyone who's listening that is a founder but also has some really great killers inside is help them grow their personal brands because this is like an asset that they'll have for life and they'll always remember 
that you gave them access to growing their personal brand. I think in the old days, and maybe you experienced this, you felt like you couldn't think about you when you worked for a company. Maybe I'm overstating this, but a lot of times you didn't feel like the company was in it with you. I think the new age of companies, as they help people grow their business, like their own kind of little personal stuff, you'll see an even deeper affinity for the company that they're working for because you've Have you seen this company, Lemlist? Yeah, dude. Yeah, Yeah. Jason Lemkin, bro. Oh, cool. Yeah, I I don't know anyone from them, but I see all their sales guys and their founder all post pretty good content all the time. Yeah. I think they made a post sometime recently that they get 20 million impressions organically on Twitter or LinkedIn every week. That's crazy. When I saw that number, everything shifted in my mind. I was like, whoa, yeah. this, this has changed. This is the B2B SaaS, like lower mid-market game. And this is their PLG, I'd say more so. But like yeah. this, this world is, um, it's the consumer marketing world. It is a consumer marketing world. Yeah, 100%. I think that's, that is probably the title of this episode. It is a consumer marketing world. That is a bar, dude. So we usually, that I think that like we we should close off the main section on that. Um, cool. incredible. Have there been any products that you use recently that have been a great experience? I can tell you one from me. I just signed up for, um, the browsing company's, uh, new browser arc. It's not new. I'm just old <laughs> and, and went, got to it. And just the onboarding experience was like this very, I don't know, it's kind of biblical, dude. You like, if your sound was on, it's like, oh, and they're saying, welcome to, uh, the new internet. And you're like, oh my God, this is, I'm so happy that I've been welcomed. And it was a really delightful experience. Um, and the browsing experience, like all of it's been pretty, pretty great. I might also just be on one of those placebo highs where like they made me feel so good during the uh, the onboarding that I feel like I just have to like this. But I was really impressed with how they how they productized that experience, which I've done a hundred times already and made it feel new and, and meaningful. Dope, dope. Yeah. I think products on my side, let me see. The first one is um, Clay. So Clay... Ooh. Uh, I just, I just it, did it. I just did it. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's really nice. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. I'm still validating like its accuracy versus some other processes, but it seems to be a, heading in like the, a really cool direction that's way more intuitive. And yeah, I think it's really good. I think Clay, Clay is ma- magical. They're touching on a, a magical new type of experience that yeah. was really cumbersome before. So that, I would say that was number one. Um, yeah. And then number two is maybe for the e-commerce folks out there, because I think a lot of e-commerce people listening, this is a company that we wish we could use but have not been able to use called Loop Subscriptions. Yeah, They've moved over like 400 or something brands from Recharge and Bold to Loop over yeah. the last year or two. And they have never lost a customer the other way around. God. That stat was crazy to me. I was just I was just talking to the founder the other day. He told me that stat. And I was like, say, say that one more time. Yeah. Like, and he's like, Yeah, what do you think? I was like, this is crazy. And I think the team is the team is like based in India. So they're extreme hustlers. Founder built a big company there before. So sometimes they have a little trouble breaking into like these larger accounts. Yeah. But it seemed to me what I, what they have is like way, 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 way better product. Yeah. Uh, and it's just a matter of time before it becomes seen. But and we've we've had a couple of customers who've moved over to them as well from Open Border and, and they're pretty large merchants. And so that, yeah, if you're like a recharge, if you're a, a subscription customer on Shopify, I think I think Loop is a interesting brand to uh interesting product to go check out. People seem to be really raving about it. 
It's funny, by the way, just given the tenor of the like last 10 minutes of the conversation, how we're talking about uh, SaaS companies as brands now, and it really does feel like that's going to be something that it becomes more part of the um, kind of natural conversation is it's not, hey, you should try out this product. It's like, go oh, check out this brand. What they sell is software, but it is about like, hey, it's a brand rather than just, hey, go check out this tool, which is kind of like old, you know, it's old language. But yeah, that's super interesting. So the last thing we usually do is we end on like a growth nugget. I think right. since I've been in my, and debated a little bit. So I'm going to go and say, you know, I'm in my first two weeks as a CMO of Heatmap. And I think the thing that I underestimated was if you give, I've said this before, but it, it's a weird one to get a, a hard reset on it because you go to a new job. If you give and people have received and, and really appreciate what you've done for them, when you go do something new, they're going to be like knocking, beating down the door to support you. And it sounds mm -hmm. weird because that's not technical. Usually I give like a technical growth marketing thing. Hey, think about this. Think about this kind of uh, number. But I have seen kind of like the partnership, you know, gates open up really quickly. And it's because of the relationships you build. And I think this, um, a lot of times I have, been so obsessed with just hitting numbers and, and making sure that the charts look good that I forget just how much people will show up for you, even in the beginning when you don't have something amazing to show when you've shown up for them. And so that might be a little bit hippy dippy, um, as Rob would say, but I've seen that that's kind of my growth thing for the week is like show up for people that show up for you in spades when you have something new that they can support and be a part of. So that's mine. I don't know how that's been as you guys have kind of, like you said, transitioned out of the day-to-day -day at Pangea and gone to open border. Has that been something you've experienced? A little less at open border because we brought a lot of our team from Pangea as a spin-out. Okay. Yeah. But at Pangea, some of our best early hires are all from network. And um, many of them actually were students. So before Pangea, I started a school yeah. uh, called Horizons. Uh, and so that's we don't have time for that. But basically, yeah. I had a bunch of kids, a uh, bunch of students that I, taught, I met when they were in college. Yeah. And all the top students from Horizons, we hired many of them into Pangea. And they would call me and they'd have like amazing jobs at Apple, at Amazon, at like unicorn companies, like amazing yeah. offers. And I'd be like, wow, those jobs sound really cool. Like I'm a 10-person company. We're just starting yeah. up. We're selling skincare. But like I had this role. If you're interested in joining me, like you could. Uh, like I wouldn't even sell it. I would just say like, this is what I have. And if you want to do it, it'd be fun. But honestly, like you have an amazing opportunity there. I'm, 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 I'm jealous for. It. I'm jealous. Like that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And and then time and again, they just bet on me because they because we knew each other and we had and they had a lot of respect for the, the environment that they were put in before. Uh, and we've had you know we had a, a ton of hires that came through there. And from Pangea, I think we've probably put out four or five founders now um, yeah. who've went on and raised and building cool companies. So that was for Pangea was really big for us and. It was because we like we were. I was like mentors to all these guys and gals, uh, yeah. so mentor everyone here, and then they just had a lot of affinity to to us. And yeah. we were hires we wouldn't have been able to make otherwise. I don't know if you guys got the real growth nugget out of this that we just gave you, which is start a school as a as a way to recruit people. That's the little cheat code I took out of that that I'm gonna I'm filing in the back. When you want to have an amazing uh, cohort of people who just want to follow you into the gates of hell, it's because you've helped them learn how to do things. Absolutely. Yeah. That was killer. Darvish, this was uh, such a pleasure. I, I loved um, learning about kind of the way that you see the world. It's um, 
it's great to reconnect after all this time. And uh, yeah, thanks for doing it, man. Enjoy, enjoy that wedding. For sure. I'll see you around. And uh, yeah. yeah, thanks again for taking the time and uh, chat soon. Yeah, chat soon.